Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, BTK family. This is Patrick Georgioff. We've got a very special episode for you today. This is the keynote talk of the 2023 Maddox Trauma Conference titled Leaving a Legacy in Conflict Zone, and it was given by none other than Dr. David Knott. And we are huge fans of Dr. Knott and his foundation here at Behind the Knife. If you have not already, we highly recommend you read his memoir, War Doctor. It is simply astounding what Dr. Knott has seen and done, and it's really something that you absolutely have to uh, read it to believe it. And we've also had the pleasure of having Dr. Knott on the show before. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation. It can be uh, found on episode 303, which is published on July 1st, 2020, and we'll leave a link uh, for this in the show notes. So Dr. Knott is a consultant surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital, where he specializes in vascular and trauma surgery and also performs cancer surgery at the Royal Marsden Hospital. For the past 30 years, Dr. Knott has taken unpaid leave to work for the aid agencies Doctors Without Borders, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and Syria Relief. In addition to treating patients affected by conflict, Dr. Knott teaches advanced surgical stills to local medics and surgeons when he's abroad. And in Britain, he set up and led the teaching of the surgical training for the austere environment course at the Royal College of Surgeons. In 2015, Dr. Knott established the David Knott Foundation with his wife, Ellie. The foundation supports surgeons in developing their operative skills for war zones and austere environments. And the foundation has now trained over 900 doctors through their bespoke hostile environment surgical training course. Now, here's Dr. Nas speaking at the 2023 Maddox Trauma Conference. Well, what a welcome. My goodness me. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'd like to thank Dr. Mattox and uh, certainly for this huge honor. Um, when I received it by email, I was stunned, really. And um, within one mi microsecond agreed to it also like to thank Mrs. Mattox as well for her very kind hospitality and Mary Allen for her wonderful, fantastic organisational skills and extremely warm welcome. Um, I'd like to start then with the uh, um, lecture, which is, I'm not sure whether it's right to uh, look at some pictures of, of, of things which probably might not go well with a beautiful meal that we've had, but here goes. So I am a full-time NHS consultant uh, at St. Mary's Paddington and also do uh, sarcoma work at uh, another hospital just down the road. Um, but for many years now, for about 30 years or so, I've worked for the aid agencies all around the world. Um, and here you can see a list of them. I started, it's quite, it's amazing actually how, what a small world this is. But I started in Sarajevo in December, 1992. And Sarajevo at that time, the reason why I went there was because I saw a man when I was on the television and he was looking for his daughter uh, who he couldn't find. Then he found his daughter under the rubble and took her to a hospital and there was no doctor there. And I was a very young consultant, just started my job and I thought to myself, that's where I need to be. I need to be in Sarajevo. I need to be able to help people. So I phoned at Medicine Sans Frontier and within a few days um, I was in uh, Zagreb uh, waiting to go on an international committee flight straight into Sarajevo. I had no real trauma experience. I was a, a senior registrar in, and registrar going through all the, 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 the various regions that we do. And um, 
I had no real trauma experience, but end, but wanted to do it so much. Ended up in Sarajevo. I ended up in this hospital, which is called the State Hospital in Sarajevo, uh, which at the time, uh, five years ago, it looks like this. But when I was there, it looked like this. It was called the Swiss Cheese Hospital because there were so many holes in it. And it's amazing, it was being shelled all the time. And I used to operate underground with a man holding up a big uh, uh, car batteries and holding up the lights so we could operate and it was amazing really because it was targeted all the time there was no electricity very cold little blood products completely different to what we we used to be like when now we're doing our major trauma and in Sarajevo in 1993 there was it's surprising how many people were killed and how many civilians were killed uh, and the wounded and the and the and the children and it's such a small world that here I am uh, talking to the maitre d, realizing that <laughs> there she is, realizing that her and I had experienced uh, amazing things in, in Sarajevo. And it's such a joy to have met you today and us to have experienced all the terrible things that happened at that time. So wonderful. Give her a big round of applause. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I spent 10 weeks in, in the State Hospital Sarajevo, uh, underground operating, and you can see the patient was not in the right position for doing this procedure, gunshot wound to the left upper quadrant. Um, but my, my skills as a vascular surgeon suddenly came into note, really, and I was being transferred around the country, uh, certainly in a UN vehicle, from, from Sarajevo to Zenitsa to operate on this young boy who had a crossico-jugular fistula uh, and was in right heart failure. And I went and operated and the boy did very well. And I was really thinking this was an amazing job. I had no superlatives could really describe how I was feeling. I was exhilarated, I was excited, I was on a permanent high. I thought this is what I want to do. So I then went to spend the rest of my 30 years or so and did, and did exactly that. And I did 32 war missions throughout the, the world and two natural disaster in Haiti and uh, Nepal, but mainly worked in civil wars and, and, and proper wars. And it's amazing because it gives you an amazing passport. You go around and work in different countries. Uh, it gives you access to people. You understand the people. You have wonderful, make great friends and so on and so forth. But not only that, it made me into the surgeon that I really, really wanted to be. I really wanted to be that surgeon that could enter the head, enter the chest, uh, enter the abdomen. Uh, do orthopedics, pediatrics, obstetrics. Uh, I wanted to be that surgeon that really had a grasp of everything that we really should be like uh, it, it, as being trained as a doctor. Rather than being super specialized now and working in the upper GI or lower GI, I wanted to be that doctor that did everything. So I worked for the aid agencies. Now, working for the aid agencies is slightly different. I'm not sure if anybody's ever worked for them, but you are really on your own. You're, you're, uh, a surgeon comes in, you have a team, and then you operate on the patients that come into that hospital. There's no real discussion with local surgeons. There's no training of local surgeons and things like this. And it's completely different, of course, if you work for the military. And I joined up as a reservist in about 2006, and I left in 2011, but I went to Basra, uh, and there there was fantastic teamwork, amazing teamwork, and I really enjoyed working there. It was extremely dangerous at the time because I remember an American colonel came in and when he was giving his lecture, we pulled him down to the ground because uh, all these shells were coming in. He said, what's going on? And we said, you've got to get on the floor. 
And he said, well, what's the, where, where's the hard shelter? We don't have any hard shelter because the rich couldn't afford high, hard shelters. And we, we just had to hide behind all, this, all these bollards and things. And all these shells were coming in every single day from various uh, places to try and go bomb the, uh, the coalition unit to go basically make them go home. Some mortars were coming in every single day. This was what it was like. The alarms would go off. And it was just like that. That was in my thing called a Coromeg. Three people died on that attack. Uh, and it was a huge amount of life was lost with, uh, with what was going on then. And we used to go around on ward rounds, pulling patients off the ward, uh, off their beds onto the floor, covering them up and so on. And when the, when the bombs went, uh, went off, uh, you can, um, we used to stand up as surgeons, of course, you stand up operating, but have a look on the ground, what happens to the anaesthetist. And that's the difference between a surgeon and an anaesthetist. I worked in Camp Bastion 2010, and I'm not sure if any of you are here today have worked with me in Camp Bastion, but it was an amazing trauma unit. Uh, we did, we had 97% survival, uh, worst casualties you ever could imagine. And we learned so much. I learned so much in that two months that I worked in Camp Bastion. After that, with all this knowledge, I left the military and said, okay, I'll go back to my working with the, with the aid agencies and went to Libya. And Libya at the time was uh, being, Colonel Gaddafi's troops were surrounding and pounding the uh, Misrata at the time. And we wanted to, uh, we had to go by boat from, Misra from Malta into Misrata. Small MSF team went on this boat. And the team actually had a professor of anesthetics from Washington, another American doctor, and the rest of us very international. And we left, the, we left Misrata by boat uh, at night time, so it was all a bit sort of uh, underhand. Nobody knew that we were going. And it was so exciting. We were surrounded by um, British and French warships on our little fishing boat and got into the harbour of Misrata, which was actually mine, but we didn't know. And in, this is obviously a typical uh, uh, picture of what you see in a war zone. But it was very interesting. It's very interesting because none of the Libyan surgeons had any war experience at all. And interestingly, even more, that the expat support, which was three from emergency, six surgeons from International Medical Corps and anaesthetists from International Medical Corps, also had no previous war experience. So the MSF team, which was me and about seven others, I said, look, I was in charge of the team. I said, look, what we'll do is just sit tight and wait to see exactly what's happening. And we get a grip of what we can do. The most important thing you ever do when you go to uh, a war zone or you go anywhere in any hospital, the first thing you ask is where, what's your mass casualty plan? Because you need to know what is going on if anything does happen, because mass casualties happen all the time. And I've been in seven, eight, nine mass casualties. They've all been a complete disaster. Uh, I've got a whole talk on that if you ever want to come and listen to me on that. But it's, you really need to know and you really need to work out how to deal with mass casualties. Primary wounds are being closed. You should always leave war wounds open. In the triage tent, you, you need to have people doing operations properly, not in the triage tent through small operations, lack of equipment and so on. And you need to, you know, obviously we all know that you put a chest strain in for somebody who has a penetrating chest injury, not put them in the postrolateral position uh, and open their chest up or do incisions in the wrong place too low so you enter into the abdomen rather than getting into the chest. One of the worst things you should never do in a war zone if you're an author, doing orthopedics is to put in internal fixation because the internal 
the, the bones will be infected, everything will be infected. So you must always use external fixation, plaster or traction. Never, ever, ever internal fixation. And probably the, one of the worst things as a, as a vascular surgeon is to see a patient having a really good popliteal bypass from a gunshot wound, but no fasciotomy has been performed. And this patient uh, lost his leg. So at the time, I used to run the Definitive Surgical Trauma Skills course at the Royal College of Surgeons. I ran that for six years. And I think you can see in the audience in the, who was on my faculty with John Armstrong and also Mark Boyer, you became friends with me. And I thought, okay, I've got this stick. So I, I started to, to have the stick and uh, started to train the surgeons in Libya. And suddenly it realized that, you know, what we did then was to leave wounds open, uh, put, put fluffy gauze, uh, always put chest strains in, always nobody even heard of damage control damage control shunts and then your orthopedic management and then finish off by doing component of vein graft and always always do a fasciotomy aleppo in syria 2013 was even worse all the doctors the senior surgeons had left left you with a very small card of of doctors uh, that were very not very trained in how to do uh, surgery so example here you've got a patient who came in fragmentation wounds to the arms and legs and chest and it's obvious that somebody with a fragmentation wound to the chest like this if you examine them properly very cursory but you need to do a proper examination you can see probably not here but he had distended neck veins if i got my stethoscope out he'd have some uh, i couldn't muffled heart sound so the you know diagnosis obviously is a cardiac tamponade but they waited and he went into cardiac arrest I happened to be upstairs, somebody said, David, come down to the to see what's going on. And when I went down, this is what was happening. How do you mind? Play yourself, hey. I'm afraid if there is some form of deal, like... Well, that's what I thought I was going to do, the dumb in the fire. But it is... So the surgeon did his default operation, which was to open an abdomen. He'd never opened the chest. He'd never even heard of cardiac tamponade. He didn't know what to do. Perfect opportunity to then teach to, uh, the, the doctors how to do it and so then we open the chest open the pericardium relieve the pericardial tamponade suture the right ventricle and this boy did extremely well and so it was a great opportunity my first day there and they must have looked at me and thought wow who is this who is this man and they were very difficult trauma cases we had cardiac, thoracic, vascular. So I decided what I'm going to do, I'm going to teach all the surgeons in Aleppo how to do this sort of surgery. So I spent hours lecturing to them and realizing that what you have to do is teach and teach the surgeons in the operating theater, get all the surgeons from Aleppo to come around and just be taught how to do proper trauma surgery. Shoot them all, fuck off, put your up. Very nice, that's just at the brain or the reason why I show you this is because the surgeon opposite is a 28-year-old surgeon who became so good at uh, opening chests doing, and doing things. I, if I said to my 28-year-old registrar to do this, there'd be some eyebrows raised. So they were really, really well-trained, became well-trained. And as it was in Aleppo 2013, because there were so many little hospitals there, we would be trundled around uh, all over uh, Sarajevo, uh, all over uh, Aleppo by ambulances and this is an ambulance driver taking me from one hospital to another and so this is going through Aleppo 
to one hospital to another. Pretty dangerous stuff. But we went into one hospital and it, we, we were doing so well by this time that this was a patient who had a gunshot wound to his kidney, gunshot wound to his uh, head of pancreas, taken out the second part of the duodenum. Of course, the only operation to do is, is a trauma whipples in this sort of case. Of course, you can do damage control. You can put tubes here, there and everywhere and drain things. That's fine. But what are you going to do then? So we decided to do a, a, a trauma whipples. And uh, amazingly enough, we had lots of help with all the surgeons around who came to watch and helped. And the anesthetists were all there. And this was the boy seven days later after having his trauma whipples in the middle of a war zone in Aleppo. Did extremely well. We then used to go off to various other hospitals and it's very important as a trauma surgeon, as a war surgeon, as a humanitarian surgeon, that you need to know how to do various specialties all the time. So this, we went to another hospital. There were lots of snipers in Aleppo at that, that time. There were 10 or 15 cases per day of people being shot. And there was a particularly unpleasant sniper who would shoot pregnant women. And we had, there was a girth of this happening. And this is a, a lady who was shot in the abdomen uh, and you can see um, some some fluid there with an ultrasound listening to the baby. The baby had a pulse, and so we did. Now this is real time operations. So I, I decided to do. Somebody was holding a camera. I decided to do a uh, laparotomy. Now the reason why somebody's holding a camera is because it's so important to document everything down, and of course get consent for doing it either at the start of the operation or the end. But somebody needs to document everything because if you don't document things, you'll lose all this information and you'll lose out uh, this educational um, material that you really need to use. So here we are making the incision slightly bigger. Again, this is all real time, no editing at all. And then deciding then, well, what am I going to do? So pulling out the uterus, realizing there's a gunshot wound through and through, and then the umbilical cord. So then what you do, how do you get the baby out? It's still alive. So you then think, okay, I'll do a lower segment cesarean section, which if you've done many of them before, it's not that difficult. Go through an area of membrane, which is easy to get. And through there, you um, get the baby out as quickly as possible. And lo and behold, you must always try and save the life of a mother, not the child, if you possibly can, this mother. And we had some children that died, but we had some children that lived. So what do you do with this? Well, you, you don't do a hysterectomy because you're going to lose too much blood. You're going to have to just sew up the uterus and make sure it's watertight, basically. And we did that, and she did well. So again, it's giving this messages over about uh, we, we, we talk about the same thing with ruptured uteruses in Africa. What do you do? You don't take the uterus out. Don't do a hysterectomy. You sew it up. The results are significantly better. And when I left Aleppo that time, I had somebody send me a message to say, uh, Abu Abdullah did a clamshell four days ago and a patient had a gunshot wound to right ventricle and three sutures. He's doing very, very well. And there he was with his patient. So it's leaving this legacy of training and training and training. In Aleppo 2014, it was completely different. It was really, really dangerous. And barrel bombs are being dropped all the time on cities. This and you know, the patients would come in, they'd be inhaling all this concrete dust, and it would be a really difficult way of managing. Hospitals are being bombed all the time. One of my biggest bugbears in life is 
to, to stop hospitals being bombed. We do marches down Trafalgar Square. I've given messages to the Prime Minister. Hospitals shouldn't be bombed in war zones because interna against international humanitarian law and Geneva Conventions. But it happens all the time. Even last week, somebody sent me a picture of their hospital had been blown up. We used to work in underground hospitals because it was too dangerous. And we went around, this is what it was like at that time. And we went around from one hospital to another one day, and I was with my great friend, Amar, and we were going from one hospital, and we were spotted by a Syrian jet that was, was circling around Aleppo. And I honestly, honestly thought that this was the end. Uh, this was the end. But luckily it wasn't. Um, but we did have lots and lots of casualties from that. And again, because it's important to be trained in all the different specialties, plastic surgery, vascular surgery, orthopedics, everything else, you can do something to help somebody like this. So this little boy, obviously, if he had lost all the circulation to his foot, he'd lost his uh, perineal, posterior tibial, dorsalis, pedis, foot was gone. But it was sort of, it wasn't so, it wasn't particularly damaged. It was just the blood vessels. And so it's very easy to say, okay, I can't do anything about this. I'm going to do a baloney amputation. But if you can do something about it, that's what you need to do. And what you can do, we took the long saphenous vein out of the, of the other leg, uh, and we put it into to this bypass. So we bypassed from tibial perineal trunk right down to posterior tibial artery, but all the skin had gone. And so we, we needed to cover the bypass. But I wanted to wait 24 hours. We waited for 24 hours. We brought him back to the operating theater. And then lo and behold, it was amazing that the graft was still working. So we debrided all that tissue and we did an operation which was 50 years old, the cross leg flat, which McIndoe did in the Second World War based on the posterior tibial artery. We raised a, a, a flap and here I am teaching the, the plastic surgeon in Aleppo how to raise this flap. We put it onto the other leg and we left it there for three weeks or so in an external fixator. So the little boy was, was in his... Um, uh, bed for three weeks while the circulation from the donor legs provided circulation to the flap and um, there it was there and then three weeks or so you cut the flap and cover everything up with it and there's the the salvaged leg and here he is walking about three months later so if you can do this sort of surgery then you really do have a chance of, of really helping people rather than just doing a baloney amputation. I'm pleased to say this little boy now uh, is, uh, I think, 16. And here he is, a uh, picture taken last week. Here he is walking with his legs. He's got a bit of a fixed flexion deformity, but he's happy. And uh, so was his parents. In 2016, uh, uh, um, a journalist called Ben Torb came to see me in London and said, we're going to write an article on the New Yorker about what you, your work that you've been doing in Syria. And basically, we told him all about that. It was a great article if you ever want to, want to read it. But at the time in Syria, I was getting lots of messages from the doctors there because I became great friends with them. And they were saying, David, we need to know about this. So WhatsApp and all sorts of messages came back to say, you know, how, how can we deal with all these injuries? They got to the stage in 2016 where Aleppo was surrounded uh, by uh, troops um, um, and there was no way out. The Russians were started to be to bomb them as well, and there was just no way out. And they sent me a message to say, David, can you help us? We have a man who's blown off his jaw, 
and we want to, to do something because he's aspirating all the time. He's not going to survive. And this was him. So I said, okay, I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. So I contacted 10 facial maxillary surgeons and you get 10 different answers. And, you know, well, why don't you take out a fibula and do a microscopic bypass? Cap? No, can't do that. And, and so what we decided to do eventually was to uh, do um, a pectoralis major flap. And there's a video now, hopefully you can listen to this a video. Gives me a break for five minutes. Underground and under siege, a rare glimpse into an operating theatre in Aleppo. Hollywood doesn't do the reality of war, so this is what it looks like when a man has his jaw blown off. In rebel-held Syria, being a doctor is a dangerous game. 754 doctors have been actively killed in the north uh, of Syria since the conflict started in 2011, and it's suggested that being a, a medic or even a patient in a hospital is probably the worst place you possibly can be in because hospitals are targeted constantly, doctors are targeted constantly. Mohammed, a shopkeeper, was hit, they say, by a Russian bomb, which also killed two of his friends. They've never done a jaw reconstruction before, but if they don't, the chances for this father of three are slim. David Nort is a London surgeon who went to Aleppo two years ago to train surgeons. Now his former students have asked him to direct the jaw operation via Skype and WhatsApp. How exciting is this? For me, this is one of the most exciting things I think I've ever done. Being able to direct surgeons who I've actually trained, I've trained these boys uh, when I was there in Syria. So they know me and they have confidence in me. That I know them, I have confidence in them, I know what they can do. Um, so between the two of us, um, we can do this operation. We believe this is a world first, a selfie stick being used to transport an eminent London surgeon into a basement hospital in a besieged city. I want you to take uh, an incision which goes uh, to take the whole of the pectoralis major muscle. So I want you to make an incision laterally below the, laterally below the, the, the nipple to, ex to start to mobilize the pectoralis major muscle, okay? Uh, doctor, uh, I, I, what, what about the, uh, the medial for the nipple? And uh, I make uh, two flaps and uh, mobilize nadic. Okay, that is absolutely fine. Challenge here is that the doctors in Syria are young and enthusiastic, but they're inexperienced. David Nutt, a London surgeon, he knows what he's doing, and the two sets of doctors are connecting through the very latest in our amazing digital technology. But of course, a battery's going down, the line drops out. It's difficult, but nevertheless, the two sets of doctors are breaking the siege of a lap. Here is the heart. More on the problem, you. Okay. We we done the don't call problem. The doctors solve their problem. Then David explains to me the complexity of the operation. This is the pectoralis major muscle. Yeah. And this is the muscle which has an artery comes off just below the collarbone. There. Yeah. So we pre we preserve that artery to this muscle. We've now put an area of skin on here as well. So we're going to move that right up into the man's jaw, and we're going to put it underneath the um, 
metal plate and then uh, the skin goes over the top so the skin will come here and the muscle will cover the uh, the plate so you won't know when you look at him but he's got a plate in his mouth correct you've done a wonderful job today and it really was a wonderful job here he is three months later with a jaw that was uh, that was working very well and uh, he he lived uh, and Skype contacted me um, in um, Gaza again um, I was there uh, Gaza seven miles long 22 miles wide um, it's a very condensed area, lots and lots of uh, people, lots and lots of injuries. And here you can see going into a hospital that's been bombed. There was mass casualties on a daily basis. Uh, this is just one day, 102, 108 the following day, sometimes uh, 90 and whatever. Um, and we train the doctors uh, usually uh, in the WHO way of of uh, mass casualties, which means that when a patient comes in... Yeah, we're not with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about to talk to the killer. Operations. Rather. When we said, everyone in the NATO do you? So, why did it be killed? What's up there? And it's a real one, then sorry, but it's like... So, it's one. Then all the slides are that... I don't even think I'm doing it. So, it's about... It's killer decided. Good doing. Buy a ship with double loop. I was not all over. I can't look at the other one. Lord has more and more of an upsy. So when patients come in, they either go to the red zone or they go to the green zone. And from the red zone, they then get double, they, they get in at secondary triage uh, and then um, classified as red, yellow, um, it's now changed colour from black uh, to blue um, if they're going to maybe die and grey if they have died. But I was in that hospital when these patients came in and this little girl was on the operating table and she had um, evisceration of a bowel, she had fragmentation injuries to her bladder, spleen, colon. Uh, she was in a really bad way and she was very low blood pressure. She had an injury to a brachial artery as well. And as I was standing there, the, the um, surgeons... They, they said to me, you know, um, the hospital is going to be bombed in five minutes. David, you've got to leave. So it's a dilemma. You're standing there and you could hear people running down the stairs and running out. And you think, well, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to leave this little girl to survive, uh, to, to, to die on the operating table and run out with them? What are you going to do? And it's a dilemma that we all sort of need to think about, really. What would you do in this situation? Would you stay or would you go? And at the time I was single and so I stayed and um, there she is uh, alive. Now just a, a tiny bit of uh, science. Uh, resuscitation means restoration of course of oxygen to the delivery to vital organs. And of course we all need aerobic respiration. That's what resuscitation is, is providing aerobic respiration to our bodies. And often, if you're in a major trauma center like I am in London, I have piles of blood. I've got loads of blood. I've got FFP. I've got everything I ever want. Um, but when you're in the austere environment, you don't have anything. You've got two units of blood, maybe the whole pack, whole blood, and very little else. And so it's very interesting. I thought to myself, before I went off to Syria 2013, I would do a study, and I would look at all the patients I operated on, every single patient who lived and who died, basically based on the haemoglobin content. And so 603 patients in, in that period of a year I'd operated on just by myself, so I had no other uh, issues. And of course the 
to maintain an aerobic circulation, you need a critical amount of oxygen. Of course, the critical amount of oxygen is proportional to the hemoglobin you've got. And so I wanted to work out exactly how much hemoglobin do we exactly need to maintain aerobic respiration. And it comes out to be at 6.2. And I'm quite proud of this, really, published in The Lancet last year. I then decided to give up the definitive surgical trauma skills course and do the surgical training for the austere environment course. And this is a course where I wanted to train humanitarian surgeons. And so we use this sort of knowledge about the damage control. And it's, we have a five-day course where we, we go through cardiovascular, abdominal, neurosurgery, orthopedics, plastics, obstetrics, and gynecology, and so on. We have somebody at the front who shouts his head off, and then we have uh, teachers on the table and four participants and cadavers and so on. And I know some American uh, surgeons have been on this course, and I hope they're here today, but this is the lab that we used to do at the Royal College of Surgeons. So by the end of this course, whoever you are, you know, you, you know that you don't use internal fixation. You put in a, 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 a traction pin, you can do a high amputation, you can do a laparotomy, you can do a colostomy, you can do all these sort of things. You can do plastic surgery, we'll teach you how to do uh, gastro, gastro flaps to cover bones, which needs to be covered within 72 hours. You can do soleil flaps, proximally based or distally flakes. We'll teach you how to do all that. We'll teach you how to do the systemus dorsi flaps. You might think they're very difficult, but no, they're not. They are uh, the, the, the workhorse plastic surgical procedure, which is a really good operation to do to cover various big wounds. And we can teach you plastic surgery grafts. We'll show you how to deal with children and burns and so on. And, and of course, obstetrics. You need to know how to do a cesarean section. Same thing what I need to do recently. And you need to know how to do uh, post, you need to have to deal with postpartum hemorrhages too. But we decided because this course was, was quite expensive to go on, Ellie had this brilliant idea, and Ellie's sitting over there, who's the chief executive of the foundation. And she developed the charity, the David Knott Foundation, specifically to pay for people to come from all over the world to come and do our course. And it worked really well. And we had uh, 77 scholars over the period between before COVID. We paid for their travel to come from all over the world uh, to come and uh, have training with us. But we also felt that because people can't come to us, we need to go to them and we need to go to them and we need to train them as well. And so we developed this other course called the Hostile Environment Surgical Training Course, where we actually go to the front line and we train surgeons on exactly what they really need to know about. Of course, you can't train surgeons like this, and this is one of our courses that we first started in Libya, for example. You can't train surgeons looking at another surgeon doing an operation. So we went back, so I thought, Phil, how are we going to do this? Uh, and as Dr. Mattock said many years ago, I used to come to Tucson uh, every six months to flight safety, where I'd do my flight uh, Learjet uh, training, and I actually learned to fly a Learjet uh, in Tucson. And once you've got your pass your exams, the simulation is so good that you can go back to uh, and just jump in a Learjet and take it off. The training is so good. So I thought that's what we need to do. We need to trace, we need to have simulation that is so good that we are able to teach people on it as well. So we developed this model called Heston and Heston is a model which is silicone based. It's got all the 50 operations that you need to know uh, how to do. It's all worked out really well, anatomically completely correct. And we do our five-day program, but we sometimes limit it down to three days if we're in a very hot war zone. And we take our equipment with us, and uh, this is the way we teach. So, for example, if you want to open up the chest, we, we, all the surgeons in the, uh, on, in the front uh, firing line will come and be taught how to do it properly, how to put the finichetti retractor in properly, how to make sure the blades are in the right way, and how to do your 
uh, open pericardium for a cardiac tamponade. So everybody gets taught on that scenario we had in Syria, uh, how to do this. And then we go to the table, and then we go to, then there's, they work in pairs. We make all these hearts ourselves. Uh, we have somebody that works for us. The heart is exactly what it is in a human heart. We have the pericardium, which is quite, di which is, as we all know, the pericardium sometimes can be really tough to enter. So we enter the pericardium, we, we show how to, um, to do that, and, and the heart is absolutely anatomically nor uh, as, as normal. Uh, uh, muscle of the right ventricle is thin, muscle of the right left ventricle is thick, you've got the right atrium, left atrium, and we go through all the operations that you'd need to do on the heart. And he, here, for example, sewing up this injury to the, the right ventricle, uh, we do this operation. I was very interested in the last session listening to uh, who would use a, 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 a tam uh, um, who would use a pledget? Uh, and this is the way we would use pledgets. Uh, I know. I'm sorry, Dr. Matsorts, you, you don't like pledgets, but um, this is the way that we would use a pledget going through the uh, pericardium and lifting it up. And we would teach that, and we teach how uh, with a beating heart and so on. We also teach things like this. The more in Yemen, for example, we would teach this because they have this very advanced surgeons. This is in Syria, how to do a lung twist. We go back to our model Heston and everybody has a go then understanding hyalur injuries, understanding how to deal with uh, injuries to the, uh, and also systemic air embolisms, how to cut the circulation off immediately to the, uh, to the uh, lung and how to open up the heart, how to do internal cardiac massage. Uh, of course, I listened uh, this morning to the lecture on um, resuscitative thoracotomy and I have exactly the same views as well. In the austere environment, it doesn't really work at all because you do need about, I, in my opinion, about 25 units of blood to make somebody with an exsanguinating uh, uh, resuscitative thoracotomy um, alive, but it, with, without having that much blood, you don't survive. And also, if you open up too many uh, regions, patients tend to lose uh, heat and they become hypothermic. And then you've got a patient who's hypothermic who's never going to survive. So I, I always tell people that if you're going to do something in the abdomen, try and keep it in the abdomen if you possibly can, because opening up the chest as well, you'll lose heat and you'll die from hypothermia. Uh, injuries to the head, for example, we teach as well. Uh, penetrating head injuries, we teach how to do it, the correct way of method of doing that. And here we have it on Heston as well. We have the model which uh, has penetrating head injury here. We, op we show how to open up uh, the flap properly. We get our um, Hudson braces out. We do perforators and burrs. We open up the, the cranium. And what you do if, if you're doing a, this sort of operation is that you wait for the uh, open up the and you wait for the, uh, if you've got raised intracranial pressure, you just wait for the, the, the um, uh, blood to come out. You don't do anything else. If it won't come out, it doesn't come out. But you're doing your best. You're debriding and you're making it work. And then what we do then is we go back to the drawing board. We have all these models that we bring with us as well. And all the surgeons understand then what to do with a penetrating head injury. Uh, I won't go on anymore. Uh, we have very young uh, residents in the UK. And this is my daughter helping me. Um, and I just want to show how, how our model is so good. We do a cattle brush maneuver. The assistant is about to help us now to help me do that. There she goes. And mobilizing the cecum, right uh, hemicolon. It works beautifully. We've made it such that it's, it's as good as we possibly can. There's the duodenum, cockerize the duodenum, and there's your IVC. And here again, I have to mention this one, of course. Uh, the, um, here's my assistant again, going to help me to do the world-famous Matox maneuver. There we are there. And mobilizing the colon, 
bringing it right over um, and mobilizing the spleen to do this procedure. We make sure that all the surgeons know how to stitch properly. So we spend a long time with the surgeons. We make sure that they know what they're doing. All the arteries and veins are silicone, but they're very, very good. They have intima as well. Uh, I spend time with the surgeons going around, showing them exactly what I do in my team, go around showing them exactly what to do um, and make it really nice. And here he goes. Plastic surgery shows skin grafts and flaps. Heston has this skin that we've developed for him, uh, which has a Humby knife, which you can take. All the surgeons then uh, work out how to uh, go have a go at taking out skin grafts, knowing how to do that. We also uh, teach uh, fascia cutaneous perforator flaps. Um, we teach about um, ax axial pattern flaps. Here's the the uh, flap that we had, the the um, pectoralis major flap. There's the artery, the uh, thoracochromial branch, the pect uh, uh, pectoral branch, and here's a groin flap which has the uh, uh, the um, superficial circumflex iliac artery. Uh, so we show that here's a little boy that had his cross leg flap. We show how we did that. Um, we cross leg from one side to the other. Take a gastrocnemius flap. We show how to do those on our model. Uh, we take proximally and distally based allele flaps, that's showing there. We show how to take sural flaps, which is a really good flap for uh, covering injuries to the lower leg and uh, heel. And we also then show also how to do a, a latissimus dorsi flap uh, based on the thoracodorsal artery branch of the subscapula. And there it is there as well. So we've been taking this course around the world with us and we've taken it to uh, 41 courses. We've trained over 1,200 surgeons on the war zone, uh, on the front line. We've also, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Ukraine, but last week uh, we were in Moldova. Ellie was in Moldova last week. Um, and before that we were in Djibouti training the surgeons in Aden. Um, but just a bit about Ukraine. So when Ukraine war started in 24th February 22, uh, from the foundation, we decided to run a, a, a course to train as many surgeons as we can on Zoom for 12 hours. I also find that Zoom doesn't really work when you're training doctors, but we, we had 50, 573 doctors on the call. In April 22, I decided to go myself to Ukraine to see what it was all about, so I went to Zatoma and realized that the surgeons were not trained there at all. They'd never dealt with uh, severe blast injuries at all, which we were getting, and we did all these operations with them, showing them how to do this. But I also felt, and this is again another case, his, his head is on the, brown, on the ground, it's just a shoulder. And it's the operations that they were doing, for example, taking out the uh, a skin graft, a full thickness skin graft, and putting it in that area, it's not going to work. What you need to do is a latissimus dorsi flap, which then I taught the surgeons how to do. Um, and lots and lots of surgeons kept coming and looking. I then felt the right thing to do was to run a HES course in, in uh, Ukraine. So we ran a HES course in Dnipro and also in Kharkiv. And in Dnipro, lots of surgeons would come back, come up from the Donbass for training. And here you can see lots of surgeons uh, in the little chap in the green over there is, um, he is a surgeon from the Donbass who we taught, who were in contact with all the time. And he showed us the, how he was now able to cope with debridement. He'd never done a popliteal bypass before in his life and, and a fasciostomy, of course. And, but he did it and with a good result. He also showed us how he was dealing with resuscitative thoracotomy and packaging the patient up and sending them on uh, uh, to the next hospital 
We went to uh, Kharkiv and it was extremely dangerous in Kharkiv. We were operating underground, training doctors underground there, again using Heston and all our models that we had. And this is how dangerous it was. Cruise missiles were coming in every single day, just up in It was very dangerous. And we were operating again with the surgeons there, showing them their operations in the evenings after running the course during the day. Uh, one of the surgeons there was a pediatric surgeon who um, was a very nice lady who sent me this message saying, Dear David, it may be unexpected for you to receive this letter. I'm a pediatric surgeon from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Uh, in June, we attended your HES course. My colleagues and I are grateful for all your information skills. We gained three days of training. Unfortunately, we faced mind blast injuries and penetrating wounds constantly again, every single day. We were not used to work with such, in such, uh, with such work cases in peaceful time, so professional guidance and knowledge are priceless for us now. Two days ago, we admitted a child aged 12 with shrapnel injuries to the right lung and heart. Thanks to your professional experience, tips and tricks you shared with us, I was ready for a situation as I'd never been before. My colleagues also participated in the course and assisted me in this challenging case. We suited the right age room according to technique we have learned during our training. Our surgery was successful and the post-operative period is now uneventful. And there's so are operating on this uh, 12-year-old child with an excellent result. We went off to uh, Odessa in June and we started training all the surgeons in Odessa and Mykolaiv. And they sent us pictures back of how they dealt with their penetrating head injuries, which said we taught them how to manage. We went off to November, we went back again to Poltava and uh, Zitoma. And this time we took anaesthetists with us as well. So the anaesthetists started training all the anaesthetists, again, bringing lots of equipment. And so they had a, a great time training all the anaesthetists there. And also uh, last month, we went back to Ukraine again and ran another HES course uh, in Zap um, Zaporizhia, right down five miles away from the front line where the Russians are. Uh, and in Lviv. This is the team that we take. So th these, uh, this, th this is my team, a very experienced group of anaesthetists and surgeons. Uh, we sit in this car for 14 hours from Kyiv down to Zaborizhia. It's really tough going, but it's well worth doing it. And here's lots of surgeons who are uh, waiting for, their, uh, for, for being taught. We had to cut down the amount of surgeons because uh, we didn't have the space and the equipment. But um, again, showing what we were doing and then pictures coming back from them saying thank you very much this is a thigh fasciotomy which we did and here's some external fixator which we put on and thanks for showing us how to do it we've trans we've translated all our our uh, knowledge into uh, uh they can get it on their mobile phone it's translated into ukrainian it's with ukrainian uh, a voiceover so they can look at all the videos and and refresh themselves on what to do so it almost comes to the end so leaving a legacy in war zones, I, for me now, is intimately tied up with uh, the foundation which Ellie had created, nothing to do with me. It's all to do with training surgeons on the front line. It's all to do with maintaining surgical standards and giving them the very best they possibly can, uh, the very best equipment, the very best uh, of everything, and constantly improving our simulation. Uh, we have impact research whereby we, we work out if we're doing the right thing. So we all fill in forms to say that, uh, that what, what we can do better for them. And we do seminars as well. So if we see things that are not right, hospitals being bombed, we'll report that back as well. And we're a very small foundation, but we pack a really big punch, uh, especially Ellie, who's the chief executive, uh, who is really the, 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 the person that really makes this foundation work. 
Uh, I received an award from the department, uh, from the health minister in Ukraine, and he wants us to go back and train all the Ukrainian surgeons. It's all well and good saying that, but it costs our little foundation uh, about $250,000 to do a back-to-back -back course. And so we're always looking for, for money to run these courses. Um, we've trained so far 353 surgeons and anesthetists have been through our HES course in Ukraine. All the faculty I haven't mentioned, but they all deserve halos because they are fantastic and they always come and, and do that. I'll probably give myself one too. And, but the biggest halo goes to Ellie, who's done all the work, the background work, making it all worth us to go, doing all the security work and everything else. Without her, nothing would run. And it's amazing that we were on the uh, front cover of Time magazine in, in December with Zelensky. If you can look at his right ear, here I am whispering sweet nothings into it. So thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.